And hello out there to you, Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. Uh, and without further ado, uh, we are going to continue to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Negro National League. And uh, I'm going to bring on two fellows who know uh, much more about it than I do, which is why I need to pick their brains, and uh, we're, we're going to uh, be doing so today on the Bedford Sullivan Podcast. Without further ado, first, Mike LaColon in Brooklyn. What's going on, Mike? Hello, Sam. Glad to be here. I'm excited. Everything's well. Uh, and hello. Good morning. A beautiful morning. A beautiful morning. Uh, I'm upstate. You're in Brooklyn, and uh, we're we're going to be not exactly going coast to coast, but we're heading out to Kansas City and uh, introducing Phil Dixon, Negro League historian. He's written many, many books on the subject. Uh, Phil, how are you doing out there right now? I am doing fabulous. Uh, excited to be on the air with you guys this morning. Talk a little baseball. Kind of waking me up this morning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, the playoffs are in the air, and we're actually having more of a fall, I feel, than we've had in a long time. The, the foliage up here is remarkable, uh, and I'm sure you're getting a little bit of, a, of that taste out in Kansas City right now. I'm not sure what the weather's been like, but it, it really has been pretty even. Um, I, Mike, I, I'm going to pass this over to you because you've been doing so, so much uncovering lately, and you're trying to get to the bottom of many, many things regarding uh, the Negro Leagues, uh, the Negro Leagues uh, World Series, the, the closest thing we have. To, we, we never had playoffs with the Negro Leagues, I don't believe, but we had, a, uh, we, it, you know, we had some World Series, and it's good to talk about that with the October air. Uh, but also games that were played at Ebbets Field. You've been doing a lot of research on that, so I'm going to let you navigate the waters here uh, with uh, both you and Phil. Well, that just comes from being, you know, Brooklynite and being such a passionate baseball fan. You put the two together, and, you know, this is what you come up with. Uh, a lot more needs to be spoken about this. It, it's such an undiscussed uh, history here locally and nationally. So with that said, Bill Dixon, hello, good morning. So glad you could join us again this morning. Uh, please first take a moment. Speak of your books, your works, and uh, this at the present time, there's a TV series or special. Uh, maybe you can inform us and tell us about that as well. Good morning, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just part of a, uh, a Negro League special that they did and uh, was uh, aired in four segments uh, before the uh, baseball game for the American League uh, divisional series there on TBS. So uh, it's just, just finished last night, uh, the four parts. And uh, so we're pretty excited about that. Always glad to tell that story and or, or retell the story. And uh, also, uh, uh, I'm going to say uh, 1934, October. Uh, this is the time when the Dizzy Dean was doing his tour against uh, African-American teams. Matter of fact, he came to uh, uh, play uh, – they're in Brooklyn with the Bushwicks. And so they backed him up against the New York Black Yankees. And I'm talking about that on my social media now. And, of course, I have a book called The Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, uh, Race, Media, and America's National Pastime. But I happen to think that that tour was the greatest 
Negro League Major League barnstorming tour of all time, and I and I think it was uh, much better than the one that came later in the '40s with um, with Bob Feller and uh, Satchel Paige, but and for but for different reasons. And uh, you know, another book I have a reprint of a book, and uh, this you might find this interesting. Uh, it was it's called the Phil Dixon American Baseball Chronicles. And it's about uh, my great team series, the 1905 Philadelphia Giants. And, of course, the Brooklyn Royal Giants were organized in 1904. But if you pick up that book, I have games in nearby cities, and you can about follow the Brooklyn Roger, uh, Royal Giants all season in that book. And uh, so a lot of people don't know that information is in there because they've not actually looked in that book. Yeah, a lot of good information on the Brooklyn Royals in that book. So I'm just excited. I'm I'm on my way to about my 11th book and I'm trying to figure out what I want to write about next, but uh, I've got lots of things I've started. So, and I also have a boxing book that I'm trying to complete. So um, it's been exciting and uh, we're just trying to get something done here. Right. That's outstanding. Uh, I know what I'll be purchasing next. Believe you me. Uh, Today we're (laughs) going to talk about Negro leagues baseball and its connection with Ebbets field. Uh, it's a loose yeah. connection. There's only three three main episodes in history. And I thought we'd take this in reverse order and start in 1945 with the United States Negro uh, Baseball League. Now, it's formed by Gus Greenlee. A lot of people are under the impression that Branch Rickey started this, and that's not true. So I'd like to start with Gus Greenlee and give us the background leading up to 1945. Obviously, Gus Greenlee is the owner of the Pittsburgh Crawfords. And uh, take us into his history with resurrecting both his team into this league and, secondly, his uh, endeavor into reestablishing the Negro National League. Well, uh, Gus Greenlee, if you're talking about Gus Greenlee in baseball, you want to go back to 1930. And in 1930, you know, the Grays had this wonderful team, and they're pretty much dominating baseball right there on that eastern eastern area there, especially in and around Pittsburgh. And uh, there was a team in the, I guess they would have been a kind of defunct Negro National League, and they were the uh, Cleveland Cubs, and they went out of business. And of course, they had a pitcher by the name of Satchel Page pitching for them, and there was an amateur team called the Pittsburgh Crawfords. And so uh, evidently someone got with Gus Greenlee and said, hey, you can pick up some really good players. And, um, he, of course, he picks up Satchel Page. And the, now remember, the Grays have this really dominant team. Nobody can beat them, the black teams. They're, they're pretty much the world's champion. They were one of the all-time great teams, that 1931 team. But long story short, uh, Greenlee backs this effort. And uh, they come out, and uh, they uh, end up beating the Grays in a game. As Satchel Page pitches in relief, and um, by 1932, and we're in the Depression, he begins to steal the players from the Grays by offering them more money because he had the money. And uh, it started a war. And uh, and then uh, shortly thereafter, and, you know, the Grays had a deal with Barney Dreyfus of the uh, – uh, the uh, Pittsburgh uh, uh, Pirates to use that field, and they could block any team from coming in there. Well, Gus Greenlee had the money. He built his own park, and they even put lights in there uh, prior to uh, Forbes Field even having lights. So 
he was doing a lot of progressive things. Uh, he ended up uh, 1933 creating the East-West All-Star Game. Him and a guy named Sparrow, uh, who worked for the Crawfords, put it together. Also, they started the 14 doubleheaders, and uh, <clears throat> those were played in New York, Yankee Stadium, Ebbets Field, those kind of things. So that's all Gus Greenlee. But by 1940, he's out of baseball. And his team players had jumped and going to foreign countries. Uh, and a lot of guys went back to the Grays. And so he's out of baseball. But he sees this opportunity to get back in baseball uh, with this uh, new league here. And so that's the beginning of him putting this league together. Of course, <clears throat> he works uh, uh, closely with the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers. And um, he gets some people like Oscar Charleston to come and manage the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. And uh, it ended up lasting two years. And, and it was a pretty failed effort. But, you know, what's interesting is the second year <clears throat> to keep this Brooklyn team strong, they bought the entire St. Louis Giants team and made them and 14 players and made them the new Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. I don't know if you knew that. And uh, so um, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting history, but Gus Greenlee is right in there. And I think pretty much Branch Rickey was out of it by 1946. You hardly hear his name at all. But uh, they did not incorporate the league until 1946 when John Shackelford, uh, who was an attorney and a former ball player out of Cleveland, that's when they um, actually went to Columbus, Ohio and incorporated the uh, United States Baseball League. It was 1946, not 45. So just an interesting history. Now, here's one thing I would mention. Uh, in talking to some of the players, what they did, the, the connection they had with the Dodgers is that they would play a series of exhibition games in all of the minor league affiliations owned by the Brooklyn Dodgers. So that was really their connection, really, to the Dodgers, was uh, playing in those towns. And uh, that gave them a schedule that the Negro National League and Negro American League uh, didn't have because they didn't have access to uh, using the Dodgers minor league affiliations. Now, Branch Rickey picks up on this, and he wants in on the action. As you say, he hires Oscar Charleston to manage the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, but he has ulterior motives, doesn't he? Well, yeah, and I think it ended up being famous. Uh, and Jackie Robinson talked about that because he thought he was uh, being summoned to Brooklyn to uh, be offered a contract in the uh, United States Baseball League. Of course, um, Branch Rickey was already scouting players for his major league team. Now, I'm, I'm also curious if Gus Greenlee even knew that as well. So, kind of fascinating story. There's a quote. Uh, from a book written by William Roden. Uh, the title of the book is called $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Black Athlete. In mm -hmm. it, he says, quoting Branch Rickey, there is no Negro League as such as far as I'm concerned. They are not leagues and have no right to expect organized baseball to respect them. Now, this is obviously in relation to uh, him signing Jackie Robinson, uh, the deal is already struck in the summer, but the logistics of it, you know, he doesn't put pen to paper until October. Uh, we know how 
Branch Rickey approached Monty Irvin and that when Effa Manley demanded compensation, uh, Branch Rickey uh, flatly walked away from the situation and, and, and sought his endeavor elsewhere. Uh, but Branch Rickey, uh, wh- wh- what is the perception of Branch Rickey? Yes, he he wants to integrate baseball and is passionate about promoting Jackie Robinson, etc. But yet, a quote like this and his financial dealings with other owners and players, what is the perception of Branch Rickey? Well, it, it's uh, it, it can be complex. It can be complex, and 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 I know when I wrote my Dizzy Dean book, of course, um, the book about the barnstorming, Branch Rickey was the general manager of the Dodgers. Excuse me, of the St. Louis Cardinals when Dizzy Dean was there, in 1934. So it gave me a chance to really um, uh, spend some time on Branch Rickey, who he was, and of course, I picked up many books that talked about him. But, you know, uh, he was a shrewd operator. And, and the truth of the matter is, yeah, the Negro League was a league. Now, how they had to function was different than the major leagues. For instance, the Negro League was an all-barnstorming league. And then players did have contracts, and players did respect their contracts during that period. And, and you know, they would come back to their, you know, their specific team after winter league uh, play. But uh, he – he didn't respect that at all. And uh, so anyway, he ended up stealing Jackie Robinson uh, from the Kansas City Monarchs. Now, I'm sure how shrewd he was. Uh, the Kansas City Monarchs were two, owned by two white owners, uh, Tom Baird and J.L. Wilkinson. And when he stole Jackie Robinson um, and they announced that they had signed him, well, they were going to take Branch Rickey to court. And uh, it was publicized in the newspaper. And then the next day, you never heard about this lawsuit. And simply because Branch Rickey knew that if two white owners who operated an African-American team uh, tried to stop Jackie Robinson, then people are going to say that they're holding black players back. So uh, they decided that, hey, you know, he's got us. He's got us on that. We can't get our guy back. But they went ahead and signed everybody else to a really solid contract where they couldn't be stolen. And then they, the Kansas City Monarchs sent 17 more players, actually 16 more to the major leagues, but never sent another player to Brooklyn. So uh, just kind of interesting history of fascinating. Uh, Branch Rickey can be very com- complex. To say the least. Uh, Sam, you want to chime in on Branch Rickey? Well, um, in the book that I'm reading about Walter O'Malley, Mover and Shaker, right now, I wish I, I knew the I, I was spacing on what the uh, author's name is right now, but uh, I think they had a quote about you know that Branch Rickey, uh, Branch Rickey's opinion about Jews. So uh, you know, I, I think like it said something about him not wanting to sign Jewish ball players, uh, and I, I guess you'd have to really do some serious research to see if he ever did make that uh, an exception. But, you know, yeah, he's a complex fellow. Now, yeah, you know, you know, that to be a player. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Phil. No, I was going to say, you know, uh, he also pushed his uh, Christian values. It's um, a ball player. Um, when Ricky was playing ball player, he was a ball player himself. 
he wouldn't play on Sundays. I don't know if you knew that. And um, but there's a great book uh, called Branch Rickey Baseball's uh, Ferocious Gentleman by Lee Lowenfish uh, that gives a lot of really good information on Branch Rickey. So I've been trying to add to that information too. And 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 are, most people are familiar with his story of Charles Thomas. And that's the story where when he was at Ohio Wesleyan, uh, Charles uh, Thomas was the only black player on the team, and uh, he couldn't room with the uh, rest of the guys. And Branch Rickey tells this story about how he, uh, Charles Thomas came into his room and said, if I could get this black skin off, you know, sounds, it's a crazy story. And it sounds really bizarre. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I challenged that story in my uh, Dizzy Dean book. And, Sam, we also know, you and I, because you're the one who mailed me the book, The Brooklyn Dodgers by Frank Graham, that when Branch Rickey took over for Larry McDell, you know, the Dodgers were the gamblingest team in baseball, and he had to eradicate right. that. Right. Uh, lastly, about this episode, it's, it's worth noting that although Oscar Charleston did not scout Jackie Robinson, he did – urge Branch Rickey to sign Roy Campanella. Bill? Well, I tell you what, uh, Campanella had been uh, playing with the elites for years, and uh, of course, uh, I'm sure Oscar Charleston knew what he was talking about. <laughs> and, and, you know, this guy would have considerable Negro League experience, of course. Jackie Robinson was playing more with the Kansas City Monarchs who are going to be playing the western part of the country, but oh yeah, he had quite a bit of knowledge of uh, Campanella, no doubt about it. Now the league folds in in quick fashion. What happens to Gus Greenlee after the United States Negro Baseball League? Well, as far as I know, uh, that was the end of his baseball. And now I will say that they did try to in 1946 bring. Uh, a couple of teams, uh, the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers and also the Cleveland Clippers, into the Negro National League, and it was voted down. So um, he pretty much uh, just falls away uh, from baseball. And, of course, uh, baseball in the East changes rapidly once Jackie Robinson appears with the Dodgers. So um, uh, that was pretty much the end of the uh, Greenleaf saga in baseball history. And that's also the end of the relationship between Negro League Baseball and Ebbets Field. Like I said, that was the last episode. 45 years Ebbets Field is in, is in business. So let's move back in time now to 1935. Uh, the Brooklyn Eagle, uh, Abe and Effa Manley. Somewhat of a love story, no? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. Uh, <clears throat> Abe was the money man, and uh, he meets uh, Effa Manley. And, and and I think Abe is the left-out guy of the Effa Manley story because uh, Abe uh, was big in what, what we call the numbers. Some places they call it policy, basically. It, w- it was a gambling thing where it's, it was basically it was, it's like the lottery today. And so he was big in that. And um, that's what he used to finance his team and to hide a lot of his money. And uh, so he marries Effa Manley. And there is still debate: is is was she a black woman or a white woman? There's still a debate. I've seen lots of people talking about it, but no definitive answer. Or when you think you got a definitive answer, then somebody will come out with some more history. Uh, but 
she runs the team. And so she's uh, integral in running the team. Uh, and she's her everyday involvement is with the team, whereas Manley's is not. But uh, uh, once again, an interesting story. Uh, also, they started in Brooklyn as the Brooklyn Eagles in 1935, and they hired Ben Taylor as the manager. Now, I happened to talk to several guys who played on that team, uh, uh, Double Duty Ratcliffe and George Giles specifically. And uh, George Giles said one of the problems they had when they came out uh, out uh, east to play for the uh, – uh, uh, actually, I talked to Leon Day, too. It was the third one. But uh, Ben Taylor wanted to play an old style of baseball, which was the one run at a time, George Giles kind of described it. But they were into this big offense type of thing and scoring a lot of runs, and um, they weren't trying to bunt people across like in the Rue Foster style and that kind of thing. So – uh, ben Taylor gets fired, and, jo- and uh, George Giles becomes manager of the team. But, of course, they move to Newark and take some of the star players like Leon Day and, and um, some of those other players, uh, Ratcliffe and Giles, and those guys return to the West. But uh, another great history there, and, of course, they're in Newark. and But they were only in Brooklyn that one year. So, um, you know, again, fascinating. Uh, they're the only Negro National League two team to complete a whole season at Ebbets Field. It's worth noting that Ben Taylor is in the Hall of Fame. Uh, some of the more outstanding players of the team, uh, Henry Williams, Javier Perez, Clarence Palm, uh, Bill Yancey. You care to mention any uh, of the more outstanding positional players of the 35 Brooklyn Eagles? Well, you know, well, first of all, I can certainly vouch for George Giles, who uh, came to the Kansas City Monarchs at age 15. And uh, he needed more seasoning, so they sent him out to another team who was a traveling team called the Royal Giants. And uh, he ended up with the Gilkerson Union Giants and a few teams like that. Uh, But by the time he gets to Brooklyn, he's still in his early 30s because he started so young. But he was one of your premier first basemen uh, in in black baseball history. It doesn't get enough uh, credit for that he, all that he did. And, of course, uh, Clarence Palms uh, got from St. Louis. And, of course, Yancey was um, a multi-sport athlete playing basketball and baseball. So, it, you know, they had a nice little roster there. And uh, too bad they didn't last in Brooklyn for more than one year. But I think they got a better deal on the park by going to Newark. On the mound, they feature an 18-year-old rookie named Leon Day, who one day becomes a member of the Hall of Fame. Um, Double Duty Ratcliffe is also on this team, one of the more affable people I've ever not met, but, you know, seen video and interviews of him. Uh, what an incredible person. Leon Day and Ted Ratcliffe. Uh, my, Mike, yeah. uh, before we go, Mike, before we go on, I just wanted to also say that, like, it's a shame about – Brooklyn Eagles not staying there because that seemed to be like such a good counterpart uh, to the, the white Dodgers um, as just because of the, the Brooklyn Eagle name. Like it's just, it, I mean, you know, Newark Eagles still has a good ring, but it makes so much more sense that they were originally in Brooklyn. And it is unfortunate that they couldn't play more than one season. Well, let's talk about some of that because the team in Newark was the Newark Dodgers, and Abe Manley purchased them, merged them, and moved all his operations to Newark. 
and of course, that's where they became uh, the renowned team that they were and won a championship in 1946. Phil? Yeah. Boy, that's a team you don't hear about much is the the Newark Dodgers. Wow. Uh, You know, uh, back in 1934, there was a uh, magazine called The Colored Baseball and Sports uh, Monthly. And uh, it was an African-American publication. And there's a great article in there about the the, uh, Newark baseball club and uh, of course the Newark team had a guy that uh, becomes pretty prominent later on uh, Ray Dandridge was uh, playing for the Newark team Uh, and Dick Lundy was the manager Um, and then uh, once again all these teams were stocked with guys from the west so like Subby Bias from Chicago was later on go back to the American Giants he was there Buddy Burbage was also there so um, yeah they they didn't last long, but then again, once again, they merged these teams together, and uh, you know you just see lots of that going on during this period. So yeah, great another great team that is really seldom talked about, and that's one of the problems with the Negro baseball leagues. There's so much you could be talking about, and I think we a lot of times we hear the same information over and over again. But there were a lot of good black ball players playing on these teams. And they just don't get a lot of uh, publicity. Cycling back to Leon Day, like I said, he was an 18-year-old rookie for the 35 Eagles. And uh, your your views on Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe? Oh man, you know I have great stories about Leon Day. Um, uh, Le- I spent a week with Leon Day in York, Pennsylvania, in uh, 19. I want to say it was 90, and uh, we got a chance to talk about baseball, you know, uh, all week, just, you know, and I got a chance to just ask him just about any question that I wanted to, but I, I don't remember if he talked a whole lot about the year he was in Brooklyn, but of course he talked a lot about, you know, the Manleys and of course his time with the Eagles. And uh, of course the time he went to the minor leagues as well. So, um, and, and the thing I remember, we did a lot of walking, going to things and Leon Day had bad feet, so his feet were always hurting when we went to these events. Uh, also, Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe. When I met Mr. Ratcliffe, he was living in Chicago down about maybe 35th Street. would be a pretty tough neighborhood now. But back in the 80s, I used to go down to his house, which was kind of a housing project, and we would sit on his car in the middle of the summer and just talk baseball, just, uh, just talking about all the people he knew. But this... This uh, Radcliffe came there with tons of baseball knowledge, and of course he would continue uh, to gain more knowledge even after that. And uh, it, those are two fascinating interviews that I don't think I'll ever forget. And and I had the pleasure of uh, taking a picture with Leon Day, uh, but Mr. Radcliffe, I got one with my kids taking a picture, but I never got one with him and my, myself. But I admire those two guys and what I learned from them. Uh, so yeah, Brooklyn had some. Strong players there in 1935. And Sam, like you say, what a shame that it, it didn't last longer. Uh, you're listening to a Bedford and Sullivan podcast with our guest this after, uh, excuse me, this morning, Phil Dixon. Sam Maxwell, of course, the proprietor of this podcast, and is so nice to let me host this morning's discussion. We've so far discussed two episodes in 
Ebbets Field's history and their relationship with Negro Leagues baseball, the last being uh, the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, the second being the Brooklyn Eagles. Now we go back in time to the the first time, and what I think is the most famous episode in this history and narrative, uh, 1919 and 1920. But before we go there, I think we have to take this to its genesis and the Brooklyn Royal Giants and owner John W. Connor. And I think it's important that we start with him because he was such a prominent man in the community uh, that he deserves his own discussion first and foremost. So John Connor, he founds the Brooklyn Royal Giants, Bill, as you say, in 1904. He's born in Virginia in 1878. And when he becomes of age, he enlists in the United States Navy and goes on to serve in the Spanish-American War. Upon his honorable mm-hmm. discharge, he heads north to New York City, where he becomes a prominent uh, and highly re- reputable restaurant restauranter and, and nightclub owner. Uh, here locally, he owns the Brooklyn Royal Cafe and Palm Garden, uh, located on Myrtle Avenue, and he's also owner of the Porter's Club, and he also operates in Harlem as well. But Mr. Connor... Uh, a man of renown. So let's just speak a little bit about Mr. Connor before we go into this lengthy uh, history back in 1919 and 1920. Bill? Uh, on Connor, you can actually write two stories. You can write about him as a personality himself, or you could write about his baseball. And I've read a lot of um, interesting articles about him as a personality, right? And so I've kind of tried to uh, pretty much stick to the baseball on him. And because his story in baseball is really fascinating because it's a story of self-determination. And uh, this is what was going on in black baseball, whether it's Rube Foster or, or John Connor, or um, I can name probably a dozen other people, Gus Greenlee, even later, uh, because, because baseball is itself, where the Negro League teams played, or black teams, you want to call them, even before there was a league, it was pretty much controlled by Jewish and white booking owners. And these were people who were booking agencies. And so uh, they controlled how much money you make, uh, where you played, that kind of thing. So uh, they were there was always a fight for self-termination and trying to take ownership and, and move away from some of these agencies or form an agency yourself like Will Foster did. So uh, Connor was a part of that movement. You know, I might mention uh, when the Negro National League was started in 1920, Connor was an associated member of that league. And uh, so not only did he end up bringing his uh, Bacharachs to the uh, Western part, you know, to play where, you know, the Negro National League was in the West. But in 1920, I don't say probably on September 6th, the ABCs, they came and played in Brooklyn. Uh, the Chicago Giants, once again, another charter member of the Negro National League, came and played in uh, Brooklyn on August 23rd, 1920. And, of course, um, Connors ended up bringing his team to uh, the Negro National League cities. He was in Detroit in 1921 in May, and he's in Kansas City. Uh, he was in Indianapolis. Uh, he took his team to uh, play the Cleveland Tate Stars over in Cleveland. He was in Pittsburgh with his team, and they would come in and, and is a failure member of the Negro National League, trying to beat 
uh, not strong in the East and his booking syndicate. So they would come West and they would come in and they, they were a fabulous team in that they would come and play a four or five game series in a town. And every day they would dress out in a different uniform. So they had five different uniforms that they would use and they were probably one of the best equipped traveling teams uh, at that particular time. But, yeah, he had a great relationship with Ruth Foster and, of course, the uh, early uh, Negro National League. That was uh, John Connors. He had a lot more connections than that, and we're going to learn about that. A little bit more in the background before we actually hit Ebbets Field. Uh, uh, 1901s, as you would say, from 1906 to 1909, they formed the National Association of Colored Baseball Clubs of the United States and Cuba. And within this association, Roger, uh, excuse me, John Connor is the vice president, and a gentleman named Nat Strong is the secretary of the board. Nat Strong is the preeminent booker here in the East, a man who holds and wields a lot of sway. Now, these two are already at odds. The association dissolves in 1910, and rather mysteriously and curiously, Nat Strong is brought into the Royal Giants' fold as the team's official booking manager. By 1913, Nat Strong pushes John Connor out. It's never established whether Connor receives compensation money for the team, but he's nevertheless out as owner of the Brooklyn Royal Giants, and Nat Strong takes over. John Connor gives his reasons for wanting out, and Nat Strong continues to tighten his uh, grip on Eastern baseball through booking and things of that nature. Now, Phil, as you mentioned, the Atlantic City Bacharach Giants, they were formed in 1916, uh, the name Backrack, well, uh, Harry Backrack was a politician, and uh, Atlantic City was in the midst of electing a mayor. And one of his associates came up with the idea of forming a team to play in the local uh, Negro circuit and putting Backrack on the uniform. And that's what they do. But within two years, uh, they're in dire straits, financially speaking. And who comes to the rescue? John Connor. And his partner, Baron Wilkins. Yes. John Connor knows he has to go north to make money. And that's exactly what he does. But that's not Strong's territory. And as you say, Phil, John Connor has a multitude of connections, a well-respected man. And he comes to New York and he circumvents Nat Strong by uh, securing the lease Indictment Oval. And a series of events takes place where Connor is circumventing Nat Strong. And by 1919, now, before I go there, there's also two other gentlemen I have to bring into the equation, and that's Jeff and Ed McMahon. They're brothers. In the 1911, they form the New York Lincoln Giants, and they secure a lease at Olympic Field. They shortly mm-hmm. lose that lease and have to sell the team, and they sell the team to a man named James Keenan and Charles Harvey. Nat Strong okay. forms an alliance with them, and together they collude to keep 
Midwestern and other Negro League teams outside of New York City limits. They have a monopoly on the area. Again, Connor is coming north, and this is what he's faced with. And he circumvents them with the lease at Dykeman Oval. But he also makes a phone call to Charles Evans. In 1906 and 7, Brooklyn Royal Giants play at Washington Park and share it with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So I'm assuming they struck up a relationship then, if not earlier. Again, that's an assumption on my part, but with a phone call, John Connor wins uh, the opportunity to play games at Ebbets Field. Again, a place where Nat Strong Mm -hmm. does not hold sway. So all this culminates in Ebbets Field in July of 1920 when the faction of Nat Strong and Keenan are faced with the faction of Connor and Wilkins. The Atlantic City Backrack Giants versus the New York Lincoln Giants. And it takes place at Ebbets Field. And there's a lot of firsts that mm-hmm. take place in the summer of 1920. They be, on, on May 16th, they become the first African-American baseball team to play a regular season game at Ebbets Field. And they play the Treat'em Rough Semi-Pro Club from Manhattan. Uh, and again, there's a bunch of firsts. Phil, I'll, I'll allow you to jump in now because yeah. I think this is the most famous and uh, a alluring episode of three regarding a history between Ebbets Field and Negro Leagues Baseball. Well, you know, when I uh, wrote my book on Dizzy Dean, of course, um, the Dizzy Dean games, there was one played in uh, Patterson, New Jersey, and one played in, uh, of course, uh, at uh, Bushwick Park there on the edge of Brooklyn. And, of course, Nat Strong was the one who booked those games. And, of course, he dies um, at the end of um, maybe early 35 at the end of 34. And so it allowed me to write about Nat Strong in that book. So I have a lot about Nat Strong. But one thing I will tell you is that people don't realize the power that Nat Strong wielded in the East. The the whole history of the Negro Leagues starting around 1904, 1903, uh, could be say it was, you could say it was a battle against black teams and black owners versus Nat Strong. And uh, Nat Strong partnered with uh, Walter Schlichter of the Philadelphia Giants when Lou Foster was there, and Lou Foster ended up talking about him. But all the way through 1934, I think it, uh, if you can play at Ebbets Field and not be affected by Nat Strong, the next day you're going to have to go somewhere outside of New York and you're going to be affected by him again because he controlled all these little towns and uh, he controlled who went through there through his booking agency. And it was powerful on the Eastern circuit. And so you could say, uh, let me put it this way. I'll just say it again. The story of black teams in the East cannot be told without a legitimate story of Nat Strong, who is the most powerful baseball booking agency in the world, and and so uh, yeah, his name is going to appear in every segment of that, and it, and it continues to appear to the day that he dies. Um, so 
just, yeah, just, man, there's so much you can write about Nat Strong. Um, oh, man, it's just simply amazing uh, that one man, he had that much power. And uh, But that's how baseball was. It was, you know, it, it was like uh, no different than, uh, and then, uh, like, the entertaining circuit. Um, you had somebody who controlled the major places where money could be made, and that strong was that guy. So the showdown takes place on July 11th at Ebbets Field. Mm-hmm. And in that game, it's a doubleheader, by the way. And in the first game, Giants started to cannonball Redding, pitches a 5 no, nothing no-hitter, excuse me, shutout over Smokey Joe mm-hmm. Williams. Lincoln Giants win the second game. Dick Cannonball Redding versus Smokey Joe Williams. Those are two preeminent names in Negro Leagues baseball. Uh, Phil? That would have been a fun afternoon. Um, uh, uh, Redding is not in the Hall of Fame, but I think he should be. Um, he was one of the most dominant pitchers for about 10 years running there. And uh, so, um, yeah, oh, that would have been a, a game to watch. <laughs> a watch there, and it takes place in these big league stadiums. And, and uh, you know, I don't know what type of crowd they had that day. Uh, I think you made some notes to it. Um, but these games could draw, and they drew a lot of white and black audience to these to these games because these players had great reputations in that region there. So, yeah, oh, that, that would have been fun to watch. This particular game on July 11th, 16,000 fans rounded off. Wow. Uh, are, are in attendance at Ebbets Field. This game marks the first time two African-American teams play each other in a minor league, excuse me, in a major league stadium in the East. It, it, it took place in other places, but here in the East, this is the first time. Uh, oh, man, that's in August. Stuff. In August, Cannonball, this is where he throws a no-hitter. Cannonball throws a no-hitter, 4 nothing over the Chicago American Giants, another team of uh, renowned fame. Yep, and and this is in 1920? This is 1920. This game takes place on August 22nd. Yeah, so once again, you see the Negro National League barnstorming into the East and, and playing a team not in their circuit, but because it was a great draw, and, of course, they had great teams. And I wouldn't doubt that uh, uh, Nat Strong was behind that. And then in August, on August 29th, Cannonball and Smokey Joe face off again at Ebbets Field. And once again, Dick Reddick shuts out the Lincoln Giants, this time by a 6 nothing final. Sam, in September... John Connor and Baron Wilkins host a huge banquet, and they invite Charlie Ebbets as their guest of honor. <laughs> Somehow, Charlie Ebbets cannot be excluded from this from from this discussion, as he right. helps John Connor circumvent Nat Strong. Uh, in October, in October, the Chicago American Giants come east again to play the Baccarat Giants at Ebbets Field uh, for the Colored World's Championship. Put that in quotes because the World Series is not in effect yet. Uh, Chicago right. wins three games at Scheib Park, and then the next four games are played at Ebbets Field. 
where the Backrack Giants win games four and five, but the American Giants take six and seven to clinch the title. Ends. And again, I think it's a marvelous story of a rivalry, you know, partnership gone wrong, a rivalry, alliances, and, and regional titans all, all, culminate, all culminating at Ebbets Field in the summer of 1920. And, Phil, this is where you say, let's pick up with John Connor and his association with Rube Foster's Negro National League. Again, he's only an associate. And what, is this, what does that mean? Well, uh, he has no championship rights, uh, and they get to remain independent, but they, the Backrack Giants, that is, benefit from a fixed schedule and protection from roster rating. So that's beneficial to him, and it also gives Rube Foster a foothold in the East. And as you say, with Nat Strong, you know, there's an argument, an ongoing argument, that if it wasn't for Nat Strong, Rube Foster would have ultimately come East and dominated all of Negro League's baseball. And conversely, if it wasn't for Rube Foster, Nat Strong would have probably moved West and eventually dominated all of Negro League's baseball. Again, we're talking back in the 20s era. Bill? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, you can go back to uh, 1907. Uh, because when Foster left the Philadelphia Giants to come west, one of the reasons he came west is in the west, Nat Strong and those guys had no no power. And out there he joined a black owner, Frank Leland, who had pretty much you know established their own type of legacy out west. So there was always um, this thing to move, to move away from these um, – the, 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 you might call it the Eastern booking syndicate. And so players are always struggling to find a way. You know, one one thing that, and I would be willing to bet you that uh, Wilkins and, and also Connor and a few of those other people, they all belong to the Masonic Halls. And these are black mm-hmm. Masonic Halls. Excuse me? No, I was agreeing with you. Hello? Indeed, they did. Yeah, and... Uh, by belonging to these halls, it was another way that people interacted because, you know, of course, uh, we can do this real easy. But back then, those networks and Masonic Hall was a big network. So all these guys belong to the Masonic Hall. Another one is you find quite a few of them belong to the AME Church as well. Uh, C.I. Taylor, for instance. Uh, and uh, so they would uh, operate through the churches as well. So uh, interesting kind of networks and how they circumvented some of these uh, the interactions with the uh, booking syndicates. But uh, the history is amazing. And once again, when uh, by becoming associate uh, partner, this upsets those teams in the East. And, of course, Nat Strong being uh, one of the people who's going to uh, try to fight this organizes the Eastern Color League. So he's in part of that. And then they begin to raid the Negro National League team for players. And so I can think of a number of prominent players. Uh, Frank Warfield went from Indianapolis over to uh, Hilldale. Or Rube Curry came from Kansas City, went to Hilldale. And, of course, they end up playing against the Kansas City Monarchs in the 1924 World Series, which was the first time the East Eastern Color League would meet the Negro National League in quote a real World Series, and um, yeah, so yeah, if if 
we could probably do a whole show on Matt Strong. That's how <laughs> important this guy and the role he plays in this whole history. Uh, simply fascinating. Now, Matt Strong, he continues about his endeavors. Unfortunately, the story of John Connor and Baron Wilkins needs a sad end. Both of them are out of baseball 19, by 1922. Mm-hmm. Two years later, Mr. Wilkins is murdered in front of his own nightclub in Harlem. And two years mm-hmm. later, Mr. Mm-hmm. Connor passes away uh, of a stroke. And that ends their story. Uh, but I would argue that John Connor got the last laugh over Nat Strong. What do you think about that, Phil? Well, you know, I don't know, I don't know uh, because he circumvented Nat Strong for a while. But Nat Strong was such a force that, you know, once again, you know, later on, he's controlling the Bushwicks. The Bushwicks and the Bushwicks become the team that, uh, you know, uh, black teams are coming into play right up to the time that uh, he dies, Nat Strong dies. And so uh, he might have beat him for a while, but trying to do the long term was always uh, quite stressful and uh it was it was pretty a tough one to crack, and uh, I would say that uh, Rue Foster beat them for a while. Uh, Nat Strong, was, he was defeated for a moment, but he always found a way to come back because he he controlled a web of teams, and uh, and then Nat Strong would do some creative things himself. He put a Chinese team on the road. Uh, uh, there was a team called the Brooklyn Farmers, a white team who played a lot of uh, Negro League teams traveling in cities outside New York. He controlled that team so uh, he could get you a good game on top of it. And uh, so, yeah, I, I like this history because it's rarely talked about. As you say, Nat Strong fights back with the formation of the Eastern Color League. Now, it's playoff time here in baseball, so let us now delve into the history of the Negro League World Series. There's 11 of them. Uh, obviously, there's more prior to 1920, but these are the official World Series games. And the Eastern Color League and the National, uh, excuse me, Negro National League come together in 1924 for the first time, as you say, and they play the first World Series. Now, an interesting thing about this block of four World Series from 1924 to 1927, Kansas City and Hilldale face off in the first two. The Chicago American Giants and the Atlantic City Bacharachs face off in the subsequent two. So anything you want to pick out of those four World Series matchups? Wow. Well, I, you know, I will mention, unlike uh, a World Series that we would see today, uh, theirs was a barnstorming World Series. And so they're going to play uh, games where you just mentioned Shy Park. So they go back to Shy Park, and they play over in Baltimore a couple of games. And that, now keep in mind, they're from Philadelphia, and they're from – the Hilldale was from Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia there, and then the Monarchs are from Kansas City. But they only play three games in Kansas City. And then they also – play in Rube Foster's Park in Chicago. So there was a touring, barnstorming series 
that exposed black baseball to some major league stadiums and minor league stadiums across the country. So many people got a chance to see this World Series, and it was all about making money at the end of the season. Now, what's interesting, I, I can't remember if it was 24 or 25, but in one of those years, to take attention away from the World Series, uh, Babe Ruth came in to Kansas City, and Babe Ruth uh, had an exhibition game. And so, so many people went to see the Babe Ruth game. I think that was 25. They went to see the Babe Ruth game that he stole money from the uh, Negro World Series because the same people didn't have money to come back to the <laughs> to the see, to see the black team the next day, and it started to become a failure financially for little reasons like that. You know, you have, you bring in Babe Ruth, the biggest name in baseball history, right in the middle of your World Series in the same park. You're going to steal a lot of money. You're going to take a lot of money off the table. So little interesting things like that happened. But the first four years um, of the Eastern Color League against uh, the Negro National League uh, are great series. Matter of fact, there was a no-hitter pitched in one of those series. Uh, uh, I think that was the 27. And, of course, uh, the Chicago team is a great team at that time. And, of course, Rue Foster is not there because he has a nervous breakdown, 1926. So he's not there to lead his team, but his team is doing just well because he had put this uh, amazing team together. And um, uh, one of the players on the who played in all four of those World Series was George Sweat. And I had the pleasure mm-hmm. of interviewing George Sweat a number of years ago. And uh, actually, I've got a little thing I'm writing on Sweat that hopefully I can get it out this year. But I had the pleasure of interviewing George Sweat. So, uh, and he played. It was only two players, Rube Curry and George Sweat. Rube Curry uh, from Kansas City went to a local high school uh, here that's still in existence, and George Sweat from Humboldt, Kansas. So it's kind of interesting that it was two Western players that played in all four World Series. This, of course, this four block is the first time where two competing leagues joined together for a championship series. Before we move forward, let's take a step back for a brief moment. Uh, The prehistory of the World Series, Uh, let's call it turn of the century through 1919. Chicago Leland Giants and the Chicago American Giants pretty much dominate the era. Uh, First, I'd like for you to make the distinction between the Leland Giants and the American Giants because Rube Foster is obviously involved. But, uh, and just take a brief moment to discuss in that era, roughly, you know, 1890s through 19, uh, 19, 1919, roughly. Uh, well, let's see. I'm going to take you back to about 1906, the Rube Foster's last year in the East. And uh, Rube Foster was a dominant player. But because of Nat Strong, they would play and draw large crowds and this is Nat Strong and Walter Slichter combined, and they were partners. And I've, I've got documentation where they're talking to each other about the Negro Leagues, right, and working together and booking games. But um, the Negro League teams can't make money. The players can't make money. Now, the owners and the booking syndicates are making money, and sometimes they would double charge the uh, teams. So they would uh, charge you for uh, booking the game, 
and then they would take a percentage of the crowd struggling. And Rube Foster was tired of struggling because he felt they should be making more money. And that's when Frank Leland offered him and and whoever he could bring with him to bring the, quote, championship, because they were the champion team, from Philadelphia to Chicago. And so Rube Foster left, and I know he took Pete Booker with him and several other guys, and they left. He even took uh, uh, Andrew Payne, who was the former uh, Brooklyn Royals. He came with them, and uh, they all came out west and just essentially taking the championship with them. So this this is the beginning of the East versus West. And the East versus West is really New York versus Chicago. And if you get down later when Gus Greenlee organizes the East-West game, it's really New York versus Chicago. <laughs> it's the old East versus West, right? So, uh, yeah, Rue Foster comes out, and he joins the Leland Giants, which was Frank Leland's team. Well, they do very well. They incorporate, and, and they pretty much begin to change baseball history because you have this – now you have a high-salary black team. They just weren't good players. They were getting paid well. And so he's, uh, Pete Hill joins them later on. Uh, Emmett Bowman comes out for a while. Uh, um, the John Henry Lloyd ends up coming in 1910. Now, here's the thing. In 1910, Rube Foster's team, the Chicago, actually started at the end of uh, 1909. Uh, he came at odds with Frank Leland. So Rube Foster and a group, uh, Beauregard Mosley was his name, they ended up taking Frank Leland to court through their uh, incorporation, pretty much kicked Frank Leland out. And so Frank Leland can't take the name of his team with him because it's an incorporated name. So he ends up creating the Chicago Giants, and Rube Foster plays one year as the Leland Giants. And now keep in mind, here's, here's one thing that, that, that throws a lot of people off. The, the name Giant was synonymous with black teams. And in, in the era where you couldn't uh, or they didn't or chose not to publish uh, photographs of black teams, they needed an identifying marker. So that what they would use is the name Giants. And so Rue Foster knew about this Giants, and they have all these black teams named Giants. So he decided he wanted to do something unique. So he named his team the American Giants, and they represented what America was all about. They were the greatest black team in all of America, and that's when he, did, he changed baseball history again with the American Giants, and they started play in 1911. So much history goes through Rube Foster. It's incredible. Uh, let us fast forward now back to the 40s. Uh, the original Negro National League folds, the Eastern Colored League folds. And now Gus Greenlee's name comes up again. The Negro National League 2 is in operation, and the Negro American League is in operation. From 1942 mm-hmm. through 1948, I think these are the most classic matchups that everyone's aware of and obviously uh, some of the most preeminent teams in Negro Leagues baseball. You mentioned them, the Homestead Grays. So we'll start with 1942. Uh, an incredible matchup, the Kansas City Marinocs versus the Homestead Grays. And obviously the two biggest names to speak of amongst the many are Satchel Page versus <laughs> Why am I blocking out? <laughs> Josh Gibson. Help me out. 
Yes. Oh, Josh my Gibson. goodness. How could I do that? <laughs> anyway, that's the it first it night. Happened. So pick it up. Yeah, so pick up pick up in 1942, the first uh, restart of the Negro League World Series. Wow. You know, <laughs> uh, the Monarchs through the late 30s had some really good teams, and so did the Homestead Grays, right? Um the 1942 World Series, the Monarchs pretty much dominated that series. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think they won it four straight. I don't have my notes in front of me. But the, the interesting thing is uh, the last game, Satchel shows up late. And uh, they're playing a game, and he had gotten uh, arrested for a speeding or, you know, gotten delayed for speeding through some town. And uh, I always like to tell the joke about uh, Satchel Page. Uh, who was uh, notorious for speeding because he was such a celebrity, he didn't have to ride with the team on the bus. So he could drive his own car and usually had to go by himself because if you had two people with him, now you got two guys late for the game. That doesn't work. So they let him drive by himself. But I always like to tell the story of how he was stopped in this small town and uh, taken before the judge. And the judge said, that'll be $25 for speeding through our community and Satchel said, Your Honor, I'm going to give you $50. And the judge said, Why is that? He said, Because I'm coming back through this evening. <laughs> so this was Satchel Page. But, yeah, he was late for the game. But when he came to the game, he pitches marvelous baseball. And, of course, uh, the rest is history because uh, he uh, he wins the game and the Kansas City Marlins win the World Series. And that's also the series where uh, Buck O'Neill tells the story about um, Satchel Page uh, facing Josh Gibson and settling a uh, kind of uh, debate they had earlier when they were both playing for the Pittsburgh Crawfords as who was the greatest pitcher and who was the greatest hitter. And it came down to them facing each other. And, of course, uh, Satchel Page struck Josh Gibson out while talking to him. And um, and, and this is part of the, the great storytelling of uh, especially Buck O'Neill, who t- told that story so wonderful. And uh, so every, uh, he, if you heard Buck O'Neill tell that story, it was it was just a tremendous uh, storytelling experience. But, yeah, uh, yeah, and then they go on, and uh, the Kansas City Monarchs, I'm going to say what's interesting, uh, uh, 1946 played Newark. Kansas City still has a good team, and Newark has a good team as well. And... Uh, but the interesting thing is, is they get down to the final games. Two of Kansas City's players, Willard Brown and Ted Strong, don't show up for the series. And I know years later I talked to Buck O'Neill, and he told me that uh, they had were out signing contracts for winter league play, which didn't make sense to me why they would miss the World Series. And I talked to old fellow Renfro, who was on the team, and he said that uh, – the players never really forgot them for not showing up. He said, but none of the old guys will ever talk about why. And, um, and of course, uh, Ted Strong says that some gamblers tried to offer him money not to play and uh, in the game. Of course, he still doesn't show up for the game, so I, I don't know what that was all about. But, once again, that was, you know, maybe a dark period of the, the end of the World Series of the modern Negro League World Series. The Homestead Grays play in five of these matchups. 
but as you say, 1946 with the Newark Eagles, they're the ones who toppled the Homestead Grays from, I, I believe, nine consecutive pennants that the Grays won. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah, it was yeah, it was a good uh-huh. run uh, under manager uh, Vic Harris. In 42, uh, excuse me, in 43 and 44, the Homestead Grays played the Birmingham Black Barons. Educate us on the Black Barons. Well, the Barons have been inching up for years, but the Barons had some solid young players. Um and they had a good nucleus, too. Matter of fact, several of those teams, whether it be the Memphis Red Sox or the Kansas City Monarchs or, or even the Birmingham Bears, they had a nucleus of players that the longer they stayed together, together, the better they were getting. And they just needed a couple of young players. Of course, uh, Birmingham comes in with a young superstar by the name of Willie Mays. Of course, they had their regulars be like Piper Davis and um, – uh, who, who who later on gets signed? Uh, I can name a number of players who were uh, with the with the uh, Birmingham team, but uh, they had a good nucleus, and uh, so they were able to uh, capture capture the pennant in the Negro American League. And um, you know, uh, well, I guess the rest is history. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that pretty much wraps up everything that uh, all my, all my talking points. Mr. Phil yeah. Dixon, thank you, thank you so very, very much for for his education. I, I I can't call it we anything else. A lot of territory. Um, <laughs> we sure did. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure did. a lot yeah, of territory today. No, yeah, I, I was I just going to say, go it's a, no, go ahead, Phil. No, no, I was just going to say, if you notice, a lot of this history all has a foundation that leads back to the turn of the century, and you need to have that part of the history to make sense out of what was going on later on. Agreed. It, it's, it's a vast ocean of knowledge to, uh, to try to uh, uh, also maintain as well as, as gather. And it's just, it's remarkable. And I look forward to watching all these, uh, these television pieces you guys are talking about that have been on. And I just saw it, uh, Phil, I just retweeted yours. Um, it's uh, it's going to be really fascinating to watch, and I'm going to have to listen to this podcast again multiple times to gather all this information as well. And, and Mike, to give you a little shameless plug, everybody out there, uh, you know, th- this is so much information to take in, and Mike has done a great job of gathering it lately on his uh, his webpage, uh, the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger dot com, and of course, Phil is uh, constantly retweeting and, and sending out information of his own. Uh, so why don't we go to final words and, and I'll first uh, send it over to, uh, to you, Mike, for your shameless plug. And, uh, and thank you for navigating the waters today. Well, thank you. You're too kind, Sam. Thank you very kindly. Uh, instead of a last word, I, I have two more random questions that just popped into my head. Uh, just delving into all the information. Bill, I have two geographical questions. Okay. Somehow Iowa and the Dakotas and all those states seem to be hotbeds for the barnstormers. That's the first part of my question. Maybe you can explain to me why or how. And secondly, we know that Chicago and New York 
were, you know, the centers of big-time ball. But whatever happened to the West Coast? Okay, okay. But both of those are good questions. First of all, the West Coast was too far away for the average team to play, you know, a, a league schedule in 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 the areas like like I say, New York or Chicago, and then travel out there. So once you left Kansas City, uh, for instance, uh, you're not going to have any black population. So uh, if once you left Denver, and you wouldn't pick up another group of large population of black people until you got to California, Los Angeles. So a lot of times, you know, games in those areas were not the games they were looking for. And so, uh, but there were some traveling teams. I know the Monarchs had a second team that barnstormed all the way out to uh, California. Uh, There was a team called the Colored House of David that barnstormed from the Midwest all the way out to California but that was pretty rare. And and the other question was about Iowa and, and up through that area. Well, yeah, well, the one of the things in those surrounding states. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I did a 200 city tour uh from 2014 to uh 2018 and I went to a lot of those places. Uh uh you know, actually I was in North Dakota, went to Bismarck, I even went into Canada and I drove all of it like the teams who launched on that area. And it was really fascinating because in a lot of those places, they had really good town baseball. And so uh, they would come in and, like, for instance, they might hire a black battery like maybe John Donaldson and Sylvester Foreman who went to Bertha or John Donaldson and Johnny Van who was another catcher. And so they would have these black batteries and and that's what it started out with. And then it ended up, you know, they pick up a third, fourth black player and um, 1935, Bismarck had about five black players, and they won the national ter- national semi-professional tournament in Wichita. So there was always good baseball and people to win. So if you could get a black battery now, you could beat this next town. And even that had a history of going back to the turn of the century with the Algona Brownies um, out of Algona, Iowa, who became the state champions and so, uh, or Wasika, Wasika, Minnesota, who had uh, George Wilson and Billy Holland, two famous black pitchers, and a guy named Robert Foots, who ends up coming and playing for the Brooklyn Royal Giants in 1906. He was in Wasika, Minnesota, the year before. So, you know, it, it's really interesting. Uh, but there was great baseball being played, and this was also the golden era of semi-professional baseball. And I think that you can't overlook that as well. Fascinating. So I guess, Sam, my final word is, Phil, thank you so much for today's education. Well, I tell you what, I'm still reading and learning, so I can't wait to read your information there, Mike. And, uh, you know, because I'm constantly learning from all the new information that comes out. And uh, as I talk about it, uh, my understanding just keeps increasing because I'm a student of the game and I love this game of baseball always had ever since I saw the first ball player in my neighborhood hit a baseball over the fence. I said, I want to do that. I was probably in the third grade. 
couldn't hit it off the uh, infield. <laughs> That, that it fascinated me, and, I, and so I'm still trying to learn how to play this game and talk about this game. Been doing that ever since. So thank you both, Mike and Sam, for this opportunity, and uh, I'll be looking for your information, Mike. Thank you, sir. Excellent, and and Phil, um, I, I think that's the best way to end it. But I want to give you one more opportunity to tell everybody where they can find you. I launched a new website, uh, which is NLB Alive, which is NegroLeagueBaseballAlive.com for keeping this game alive. So it's NLB Alive, and I offer my books on there. And, uh, you, of course, you can get my books on Amazon or something like that, but if you get them from my website, I'll autograph them for you. That's the difference. So um, uh, I'm excited about that and just, just uh, excited for all the things that have come out to give recognition to the Negro Leagues. Uh, with the 100th anniversary, but uh, certainly um, uh, the 100th anniversary doesn't symbolize a lot of the things we talked about today that happened before 1920. And um, uh, so uh, I'm glad to have this conversation for sure. Yeah, and we can have so many multiple conversations about this hours and hours on end, um, but uh, we'll have to come back around that at a later date. Thank you both so much for joining us today and thank you out there to our uh, to our audience excuse me for joining us as well we appreciate it and we'll catch you next time take care